everyone, and welcome to The Circle Opens, a podcast devoted to a chapter-by-chapter review of Stephen King's The Stand. Do you need an affordable source for Stephen King books, movies, collectibles, and more? Make sure to visit Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Listeners of this podcast can also use the coupon code THECIRCLE for 20% off their order at any time, and there is always free shipping to the United States. That's Secondhand Bookery at secondhandbookery.etsy.com. Welcome back, everybody. As always, I am Sarah, and I hope that you all had a really great holiday, hopefully stress-free, if such a thing exists with the holidays. <laughs> um, I don't really have a whole lot to say before we jump into Chapter 35. However, I did finally finish The Institute. I actually finished it last night, really late, so I didn't have time to really write down my thoughts, which is what I need in order to keep me on track. (laughs) However, I will have a full review for this book up at The Circle Opens, um, probably a little bit later today, Saturday the 28th. (laughs) So if you guys want to read my review for that, um, you can check out thecircleopens.com. And I'll just give you some really quick brief thoughts of what I thought. This will be spoiler free, so you won't have to skip ahead if you don't want to. Basically, I liked this book. It did take me a while to get into it, and I found it really slow in the first several chapters. And I know King was setting up the settings and the characters, and that's fine. Um, But after quite a bit of the book was just the day-to-day at the Institute, I started to kind of be like, okay, let's go. Let's get the action going. Um, and But once King finally does that, it just got so good. And I could not put it down. I spent all day yesterday reading it, neglecting things I was supposed to be doing. <laughs> but I really, really did like it. I think I liked it better than The Outsider. And I really did like The Outsider. So I would say probably the last half, maybe three quarters of the book was just fantastic. I liked the characters a lot. I kind of wish he had focused on developing a few of them a little bit better, especially with a 500 page count, um, 500 plus page count. But ultimately, I, I did like this book. I think King did a great job. I love the way he writes children. And this was no exception, even if the main child, Luke, was this a bonafide genius. And sometimes I was like, that's not how a 12-year-old will talk. But maybe they would if he's a genius. I don't know. <laughs> I'm not a genius and I never was. So if you haven't read The Institute, I highly recommend it. Um, it seems like a lot of people I've talked to have really enjoyed it too. And I'm looking forward to If It Bleeds from King coming. I think it's May next year, March. I can't remember. But I'm excited to read something new from him. I think one of my 2020 resolutions in terms of reading is to finally get to the books that he's written, excuse me, that I have not yet read. I'm hoping to just have 2020 be the year of King. And I am joining a Dark Tower uh, reading challenge. I have never read the Dark Tower series. I have tried. I did not really like the Gunslinger. Well, I can't say that because I never finished it. But I did start it several times, and I just couldn't get through it for some reason. But next year, I am determined to read the Dark Tower series. So wish me luck on that, please. (laughs) Okay. 
So a quick recap of last week with chapter 34. We met Donald Merwin Elbert, also known as the Trash Can Man. He is alone in Paltonville, Indiana, and Trashy, a man with possible schizophrenia and definite pyromania, sets fire to a large oil storage tank. Um, he causes a major explosion in his hometown, and he begins to go, he begins to head for Gary, Indiana. He is wondering how many other storage tanks and gas stations can go up in flames. So in chapter 35, we are back with Larry Underwood in Manhattan. Larry is still with Rita Blakemore, staying in her fancy apartment. And Rita is ready to leave the city. Larry agrees that it's time. Larry's also noticing a bit of a difference in the Rita that he met in Central Park. If you remember, after they met, Rita asked Larry to take her to lunch, which he did. Well, after that happened, things progressed naturally, and Rita and Larry became lovers. Of course, we see some of Larry's shallow side um, being momentarily disgusted by Rita's sagging breasts and her prominent blue veins. That remind him of his mother. But Rita proves to be an experienced lover and very exciting to Larry. To him, she had seemed like a strong woman, one who could handle things with or without him. But then they go for a walk in Central Park and find the monster shouter on one of the paths, his glasses busted, lying in a pool of his own blood. He had been stabbed multiple times, looking like, according to Larry, a pincushion. Rita had screamed, and then once her horror dulled, she asked Larry to help her bury the man, which he did. Since then, she's become, quote-unquote, old to Larry. Instead of looking like an elegant 40, she now looked like a woman dancing on the chronological knife edge that separates the early 60s from the late. She appears haggard to him with trembling fingers, and her humor also seems forced now. Quote, he remembered meeting her in the park and how he had thought her conversation seemed like a careless spray of diamonds on the green felt of a billiard table. Since yesterday afternoon, it had seemed more like the glitter of zircons, near-perfect pace that were, after all, only pace. Rita is feeling overwhelmed and jittery. She's still taking her pills, mostly downers, and she's constantly apologizing to Larry for every little thing. And Larry understands a lot of it, a lot of her behavior is due to finding the body of the monster shouter, but also the smell wafting into the apartment through the open balcony. Something that is hard to describe, but knowing its bodies in the city, decaying behind closed doors. The power is still on in Manhattan, but it won't be for long. And in the July heat, those bodies will essentially be cooking in closed-up ovens. Larry makes Rita some eggs and tries to think of a route to take out of New York City. But then Rita gets sick, throwing up the eggs that she had just ingested, and telling Larry she said she hadn't wanted to eat, but she had done it to make him happy. Larry's begun to realize the problem he may have with Rita. She desperately wants to please him, to do what he wants her to do, or what she thinks he wants her to do. And if she trips up, she apologizes, not wanting him to be angry with her. I'm not sure if this is something that she learned when her husband was alive. Maybe her husband would get furious with her if she did something wrong or didn't do what he wanted her to do. But maybe this was just something that was learned after the super flu, something that was triggered. Larry's trying his best to be patient with her, but he has flashes of anger and disgust with her. Then he remembers the kind of person he's been accused of being. Selfish, a taker, not a nice guy. 
and he feels enough self-contempt to refocus, wanting to try and be a better person. But Rita is losing it a bit. Even the sex has changed, with Rita exuding more frantic energy than usual, and Larry's unable to get over the fact that her sachet smells like a fancier version of the scent that his mother used to wear. And after that, when they're falling asleep, Rita asks him, You won't leave me, will you? You won't leave me alone? It's a question that keeps Larry awake for quite some time. I mean, Rita follows him from room to room, even when he's in the bathroom, like she's afraid to let him out of her sight, maybe because she's scared to be alone or she's scared he'll somehow sneak away and leave her. Larry is afraid that he'll have to carry Rita on his back. She had seemed stronger than that, at least she had at first. It was one of the reasons she had appealed to him so strongly that day in the park. The main reason, really. There's no more truth in advertising. Larry had no idea how he was supposed to take care of Rita when he could barely take care of himself. But he apologizes to Rita for snapping at her about the eggs, and Rita explains all of this. Captain Tripps is catching up to her. Quote, Yesterday, that poor man in the park, I thought no one is ever going to catch the people who did that to him and put them in jail. They'll just go on and do it again and again, like animals in the jungle. And it all began to seem very real. Do you understand, Larry? Can you see what I mean? Larry does, of course, but he's still feeling impatient with Rita. Is she saying that she's more sensitive to the situation than he is? He watched his mother die, after all, and all Rita lost was the man who brought her Mercedes around. Was her loss greater than his? Rita promises to try and be better, and Larry hopes she will be, because they're leaving the city that day, and he tells her she'll feel better when they leave the city. I'm not really sure Larry believes that. They pack two changes of clothes, and Rita brings toothbrushes, something Larry finds a bit absurd, but it is what it is. Personally, I know I would want a toothbrush, (laughs) or at least a lot of gum if I can't brush my teeth. But they break into a sporting goods store to get some packs. They fill them with freeze-dried food, but nothing else, because they can simply get whatever they need when they cross the river. Rita doesn't seem terribly interested in any of this, which also bothers Larry. He also packs a gun and ammunition, and when they embark on their journey, Rita quotes the Lord of the Rings. The way leads ever on, thinking it as a gateway to adventure. I kind of like the little Lord of the Rings reference, and maybe there'll be more in the book just because this... The stand was Stephen King's uh, American modernized The Lord of the Rings. They pass plenty of congestion, abandoned cars, and various bodies, including one hanging from a lamppost with a sign hanging around his neck that reads Looter. One man approaches Larry and offers him $1 million for 15 minutes with Rita, but casually wanders off again after Larry points his rifle at him. They find a bench four blocks later and eat some dehydrated bacon and dehydrated fruit. Rita does seem to be in better spirits, and Larry is hoping that once they're out of New York, she'll revert to the woman she was when he first met her in Central Park. Being in New York was like being in a graveyard where the dead were not yet quiet. The sooner they got out, the better it would be. Larry is also thinking about those wealthy summer houses in Maine, the ones that they could take up in, and how they could move south in September. Booth Bay Harbor in the summer, Key Biscayne, Florida in the winter. And while Larry is thinking this over, he doesn't notice Rita's grimace of pain as they stand to start walking again. They are heading west now, past more cars jamming the streets, many of them with decaying drivers still in their seats. 
Larry's too busy thinking about what they might need when they're out of the city. Motorcycles will probably help them with mobility and avoiding the worst of the highway traffic jams. That's assuming Rita can ride a bike, though with the way things are going, Larry's pretty sure that she can't. Traveling with her was becoming a major pain in the butt. But Larry supposes, if push comes to shove, she can just ride with him. So it's just after 2 o'clock when they pass 11th Avenue that Rita lets loose a cry of pain. He notices that she's no longer with him and looks back to see her holding her ankle, which is bleeding. Because the straps of her expensive open-toed sandals have chafed into her skin, causing them to bleed. Open-toed sandals, just the thing to wear for a long hike out of New York. Larry finally loses his shit. He screams at her, wondering what she was thinking, and he feels a perverse sort of mean pleasure at the way she recoils from him. Her feet have been hurting for 20 blocks, and she hadn't told him because they were making good time, and she didn't want him angry with her. He screams at her again, and Rita sobs, covering her face. But that just makes him angrier. He supposed that part of it was that she really didn't want to see. She would just as soon put her hands over her face and let him lead her. Why not? There had always been someone around to take good care of our heroine, little Rita. Someone to drive the car, do the marketing, wash out the toilet bowl, do the taxes. So let's put on some of that gagging sweet Debussy and put our well-manicured hands over our eyes and leave it all up to Larry. Take care of me, Larry. After seeing what happened to the monster shouter, I've decided I don't want to see anymore. It's all rather sordid for one of my breeding and background. Larry grabs Rita and forces her to look at him. He tells her they may have 20 to 30 more miles to walk. The scrapes in her ankles could get infected and she could die, and she needs to start helping him. He realizes how hard he is holding her arms, and he lets her go, knowing he overreacted. Because if he was so smart, why hadn't he looked at her footgear before they left? A defensive side of him insisted that it was her problem but that wasn't true because now it's his problem. She didn't know any better. He knew that maybe taking her with him had been a bad idea, but he had done it, and now he was responsible for her. The same defensive voice in his head insists that he damn well won't take care of her, and then he hears his mother's voice in his head, calling him a taker, the oral hygienist from Fordham, yelling that he ain't no nice guy. But that's a lie. Larry apologizes to Rita, but she's not having it. She tells him to go on without her. Larry protests, but Rita tells him he's a shit and his apology is not accepted and he needs to leave. When he protests again, Rita begins to scream. And then when she stops, she looks at him and gestures him away. Larry decides to go, but not without leaving with a really repulsive parting shot. Have a good time getting raped and murdered. Larry starts off again, alone. At the mouth of the Lincoln Tunnel, he comes across a rather violent crash where the driver is hanging out of the car with blood and vomit sprayed everywhere. He looks back, expecting to find Rita following him, but she's gone. He's feeling some nervous resentment because he tried to apologize. Ahead is the Lincoln Tunnel. He could see four lanes of westbound traffic disappearing into the black arch of the tunnel. And with something like real dread, he saw that the overhead fluorescent bars inside the Lincoln were out. It would be like going into an automobile graveyard. They would let him get halfway, and then they would all begin to stir, to come alive. He would hear car doors clicking open, and then softly chunking closed, their shuffling footsteps. So yeah, Larry's feeling nervous, but he tries to rally himself. 
He just needs to stay on the pedestrian catwalk, and in no time, he'll be strangled by the walking dead. (laughs) There are already dead bodies in the cars heading into the tunnel, bloated, decaying. The smell is ripe, and Larry knows it will smell worse in the tunnel. He turns quickly to go back for Rita, but she's still gone. He yells for her, but there's no answer. She's nowhere to be found. He was going to have to do this on his own. He waits, of course, right at the access ramp, hoping Rita will show up again, thinking she would get scared and find him. But storm clouds and lightning begin to roll in, and Larry knows he'll either have to find shelter for the night and take the George Washington Bridge in the morning, which was 140 blocks north, or just go through the tunnel and get it over with. There's nothing inside that could hurt him. He had his gun and his big lighter, because of course he forgot to get a good flashlight, and it's just panic talking thinking about the dead bodies inside, but still, Larry hesitates, at least until it begins to rain, and then hail, big and stinging hail. That convinces him, and he enters the Lincoln Tunnel. It's really difficult to convey this particular sequence in a review, at least not without reading the entire thing word for word. But if you've read this chapter, which I hope you have before listening, you can picture the entire scene in your head. Larry's fear and panic is palpable. He only has a small big butane lighter to give him any kind of light after he walks far enough into the tunnel to finally lose the light from the mouth. The light really only gives him a circle visibility of about six feet, and it fuels his unease instead of helping alleviate it. His footsteps echo, and he keeps thinking someone is behind him, stalking him. So he tries to move lightly, not lifting his feet from the concrete as to avoid the echo. He's on the catwalk unsure as to how long the tunnel really is, even though he's been walking for 20 minutes already, just slowly. Larry is not completely alone in the tunnel because the dead are there, not only packed in cars, but on the catwalk as well. He steps on the hand of a dead soldier with a knife stuck in his neck. Larry imagines the dead soldier reaching out to grab his ankle as he passes by. Stepping on a dead body has only made things worse and he feels more apprehensive as he continues on. He comes across more bodies, about seven, and he uses his lighter again to get a better look at them. He realizes that these people had not died from the superflu. They were riddled with bullets, because soldiers had marked off the exits and entrances to Manhattan, and these people hadn't gotten stuck in the tunnel because of Captain Tripp's. They got out of their cars to use the catwalk to escape. Larry wonders if there had been a command post with a machine gun waiting, if there was one now, because now he not only has to worry about the dead suddenly coming back to life, but soldiers in hazmat suits approaching him in the dark, knives in their teeth or guns at the ready, maybe poisoned gas. All irrational thoughts, of course, but when you feel nothing but fear, it's like fuel to the terrified part of your brain, creating situations and scenarios that are so unlikely but feel very likely. Larry knows he can't go back. He won't. But he has to make his way over these bodies now. He starts to do just that when he hears footsteps behind him, real footsteps. It frightens Larry, and he drops his lighter to the cars below in his haste to get the light flicked on to see who might be there. He calls out, but no one answers. And that's when he grabs his rifle and begins to fire. It's just a frantic barrage of bullets. I don't even think Larry knows where he's firing at. He's just aiming to kill whatever terrifying creature is after him, and he can't stop. 
he visualizes soldiers in suits from the Andromeda strain, and then the Morlocks from the H.G. Wells classic, The Time Machine. His foot punches into something slimy, releasing a putrid, gassy smell. I don't want to know what that was, (laughs) or what his shoe will smell like later. Rita Blakemore calls out for him. For a brief moment, Larry considers running on, leaving her behind, because she'll make it out eventually. But it's a very fleeting thought, and he runs to her. She had gone into an apartment house when he left her, and she had heard him calling her name. She very nearly answered, but then two men had appeared, and she had been afraid they were looking for her. She had stayed in that apartment house until the men left, and she'd only come after Larry when she realized that once he was through the tunnel, she would never see him again. She hadn't called back when he asked who was there because she hadn't been sure it was him. Rita is sobbing, telling Larry he had been right and she had been wrong. She should have told him about the shoes, and she would eat when he told her to. But he just can't leave her. Larry's thinking about how easily he could have killed her, blasted her arm, or shot her in the stomach. It's a startling revelation for him, and it shakes him up. But she came for him, and she was okay, and Larry was no longer alone. They both just want to get out of the tunnel, and once Rita feels up to it, they start walking again. When they finally see the end of the tunnel, there are two army convoy trucks parked nose to nose just outside. There are bodies sprawled along the catwalk. They crawl over the trucks, and Larry sees a half-assembled tripod machine gun, ammunition, and dead bodies inside the truck. Rita was hoping that maybe the Superfly was just contained in New York, but it's obvious that that wasn't the case. Cars were trying to get into Manhattan just as people were trying to get out. Rita begins to cry again and falls to the ground, but Larry tells her it's all right. She asks him to tell her one thing that is all right, And Larry tells her that they're out. There's fresh air. In fact, New Jersey never smelled so good. They make plans to get to a drugstore to get some antibiotic for her cuts and find her some new shoes. Rita tells Larry she'll do whatever he tells her to do because she wants to. Larry explains that he shouted at her because he was upset. But he's not such a bad guy. And I feel like he's trying to reassure himself more than Rita. But Rita doesn't care. She just doesn't want Larry to leave her. Together, they walk past the toll booths and across the river with New York behind them. I can't possibly do this chapter justice, at least not the Lincoln Tunnel sequence. King writes such an epic journey of claustrophobia and fear and paranoia from Larry's point of view. The terror of not seeing what's ahead, but smelling death and decay, not knowing how much farther you have to freedom, or if there's something or someone waiting for you ahead in the dark, When you were a kid and you had to go to the basement for something, did you ever feel that fear that something scary was down there waiting for you and you just book it back up the stairs as fast as possible, but you feel something behind you? That's sort of the feeling I got from this chapter, except Larry can't run for his life because there are dead bodies everywhere. Instead, he just grabs his rifle and fires like crazily into the dark and he nearly kills Rita in the process. So Rita and Larry... They are both interesting characters to me. Rita is someone who has money and help, someone to take care of her. She looks to Larry for guidance and approval, and she wants to please him more than anything, which, yeah, that can get irritating given the circumstances. This is an end-of-the-world scenario they're in, and Larry is self-aware enough to realize that he can barely take care of himself, let alone Rita. But honestly, 
They parallel each other quite well. Larry is not so different than Rita. He wants approval. He wants to please others. In California, when he made it big, he let strangers into his home, giving them an endless supply of drugs and alcohol and good times on his dime. He was going to go into debt. He was in debt, but he balked when his friend Wayne told him to tell them to all to leave. What would they think of him? They'd think he was such an asshole. Larry is a people pleaser as much as Rita. Except Larry is also selfish. He wants to be taken care of. Look at how he behaved when he got home to his mother's house. She cooked for him, bought him food, gave him money, and Larry didn't have to do much in return. He didn't have to give anything back. He's a taker, just like his mother said. So when you have two people who want the same things, it's difficult. Larry doesn't want the responsibility of Rita. But did Alice Underwood want the responsibility of Larry? Rita can be a burden, but I don't think that's the entire reason why Larry found himself so annoyed with her. I think he sees a lot of himself in who she is, and that bothers him. But he's also trying to change the harder parts of himself. He's selfish, a taker. Everything that goes wrong can't possibly be his fault. He seems to have very little empathy for Rita when he's feeling put out. But he doesn't want to be a bad guy. And I think that's what makes Larry somewhat different. He recognizes his bad behavior and he tries to correct it, even if he does a poor job of it. But he's trying. He needs Rita as much as she needs him. And I think struggling through the Lincoln Tunnel all on his own has shown him as much. He can't do this alone. And neither can Rita. I was baffled that Rita wore sandals as well, especially for as long as they walked. But I do recognize that she's a socialite who probably never had to walk that far before and wouldn't understand she would need comfortable sneakers for what is essentially a hike. And I won't lie, um, Rita does get on my nerves quite a bit in this chapter. (laughs) Please stop begging Larry not to leave you. Stop telling him you'll do anything he wants. Just grow up and learn how to take care of yourself or she's, you know, she's not going to last very long in this post-apocalyptic world. It's not entirely fair of me because, you know, no one is prepared for this. No one can be prepared for this. And some people can't manage or handle it as well as others. I don't think Rita will be the first person we meet that has difficulty with their new reality. But this is a great chapter with some interesting character development for um, not only Larry, but for Rita too. I'm not sure how long um, this odd codependence can last, to be honest. But while Larry can be a massive jerk, I like that he's not just some one-dimensional asshole. He's trying even if the weight of the situation causes him to break on occasion. Beyond that, this is by far one of the most suspenseful chapters that we've had from King in this book. And I can't say enough praise for how he describes Larry's journey through the Lincoln Tunnel. Not only from Larry's point of view, but the description of the smells, the bodies, Larry's imagination. It felt a bit like Stu's escape from the CDC in Stovington. There's two grown men overcome by panic and fear, needing to escape a place that in any other circumstance probably wouldn't be that scary. You know, a hospital and a tunnel to get in and out of a city. But they're both surrounded by the dead. And that fear that they won't be able to escape, that the dead will rise and come after them, or the soldiers in suits with guns. And I really like the comparison of Larry's escape versus Stu's. The important thing, though, is that Larry and Rita make it out of New York, finally. They had plans to go to Maine, which, funnily enough, is where Fran Goldsmith and Harold Lauder are still residing. But for how long? We'll find out next week in Chapter 36.
And that's it for this week's chapter. I really, really like this chapter. The sequence of the Lincoln Tunnel has always been one of my favorite parts of this book. Um, I just think it's terrifying. And I really did like how they did the sequence in the 94 miniseries. Um, If you guys haven't seen it, um, hopefully I'll be watching it soon and reviewing it for the podcast. But I think they really handled it um, really well, as well as you can with the kind of technology that you have in 94. (laughs) But Adam Stork, who plays Larry Underwood in the 94 miniseries, did a really great job, not only as Larry, um, but as Larry in this particular sequence. Um, his, His nervousness, his fear, and his paranoia is really well conveyed. And in the miniseries in 94, they actually have Larry walking through the tunnel, um, not on the catwalk, but between the cars. So I will be interested to see how they shoot the Lincoln Tunnel sequence in the CBS All Access. I'm kind of hoping they keep Larry up on the catwalk. I think that's the rational way to go um, for a character trying to get out of uh, New York, out of Manhattan. Um, but I guess we'll have to wait and see how they how they present that to us. But it's definitely one of my favorite parts of not only the book, but of the miniseries. So I'm excited to see how um, they proceed with that in the new miniseries. And if you guys are enjoying this podcast, you can leave me a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or any platform where you listen to The Circle Opens. I really do appreciate um, every review I get, every rating. Um, If you want to reach out to me, you can send me an email at thecirclecloses at gmail.com or you can find me on social media at The Circle Opens on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. And that's it, you guys. I can't wait to read next uh, week's chapter, and I hope that you will continue with me on this journey through the stand. M-O-O-N, that spells, see you next week. <laughs>